Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, this is our 29th sermon in our sermon series on Luke's Gospel, and we're going to examine Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. That's page 863 in your Pew Bible. Now, it's in this chapter that we see how Luke relates the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ through his meeting four different people. They're not named, they are a soldier, a widow, a prophet and a prostitute. And we know that he has his patron Theophilus in mind as he writes his gospel here because his acts of power, that is of his healing or raising of the dead, of his proclamation of forgiveness and grace, are not actually directed to these four people. Much like Theophilus, who had not met Jesus, or traveled with him in his earthly ministry, these four individuals are still transformed by him. So let's begin here in verse 1 of chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now we can see from verse 1 that this first encounter takes place immediately after his sermon on the plane that we have just studied. So we can imagine that the apostles and the disciples who have just been challenged to put into practice what he had been preaching in his symbol of the house on the foundation, the rock of Christ. And this next encounter demonstrates that so clearly to them. But it's not the faith of a Jewish apostle or a disciple here, it's the faith of a Gentile. He is what is known as a God-fearer. A God-fearer is a technical term of the time. It is a Gentile. Uh, God-fearers in Judea and other parts of the Roman Empire um, were enough. uh, They would gather along with the Jews in a region where a synagogue was established, and they would be attracted to the scriptures, to the uh, theology of one God, to the ethical teachings they found in the law. But they did not take the final step of circumcision to become a full proselyte of Judaism. And in this instant, we have this exact kind of person. He's a God-fearer who is a Roman centurion. Now, centurions were commonplace in the Roman Empire, They were equivalent in rank to a modern-day army captain and normally commanded about 100 soldiers in a legion. 
he would have had a good income. And the use of their means for public services, for civic projects, played an important role in their appointment and as they made their way up the ladder in Roman hierarchy within Roman society. As they completed these works for the good of the peace of Rome, they would raise in status and so in social class amongst other Roman citizens. But what we have here is a God-fearing centurion who had eyes of faith. And he saw the Lord Jesus clearly for who he truly is. Now we also learn here that there is a crisis, that this Roman soldier had a servant who was sick at the point of death and was highly valued by him. Now, the key here is in the phrase highly valued. This is not meant to be value in terms of economic value, as if this man were a, a slave. Rather, he was probably an indentured servant. But it was a servant who was honored. The centurion valued him. He cared for him as a person. So we can imagine that it could even be another Roman citizen who had fallen on hard times, and in debt has indentured himself to this Roman officer. So they may have been companions from boyhood, someone who is very close to the centurion. And so he orders, as well military men do, the Jewish elders to ask Jesus for help. And the elders go eagerly. And in doing this, and in what they say to the Lord Jesus, we gain an insight into their heart orientation in the message that they bring from the centurion. Now, what do we learn? Well, clearly we learn that this centurion was no ordinary Gentile. Synagogue leaders are not going to run errands for just anyone, much less a Gentile soldier. And so what they thought of him, there can be no doubt. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, I want you to notice how they insist that he's worthy of the Lord Jesus' attention. He's worthy to have Jesus heal his servant. Now, this is their own spin on the message. Consider the thinking behind this kind of statement. The rationale is, is patently external. He loves our nation. We know this because, well, look, he built us our synagogue. There is nothing internal here of his heart orientation. They didn't say, well, he is humble. He is meek. He is godly, even for a Roman soldier. They praise the centurion for the kind of works with which people today think they can earn heaven. Let's give a donation, a new stained glass window. Make sure the plaque is polished brightly. Perhaps their name is in a great donor's list at the entrance. What's the scriptural principle here? This plea of worthiness, that we are somehow worthy from our own works and actions, is totally unsustainable before God. 
It is even worse, indeed, that we have this in the leaders themselves. The elders present such a surface argument for the Lord Jesus to give this man his attention because that was the way that they were accustomed to analyze even their own lives by externals. And so the leaders fail tragically. They, they only see the surface. And we know that to see only the surface is worse than spiritual blindness. Indeed, this kind of blind person Well, a blind person, well, they know that they cannot see, can't they? But this false way of seeing, this false perspective of the Jewish leaders is one that is very deadly because they think they can see clearly. But they are still spiritually blind. When we turn the magnifying glass of God's word on to ourselves, we can see ourselves clearly, can't we? And that's what we see next In the centurion's reply, there is a corrective message that is sent in verse 6. I am not worthy, the centurion says. Let's see that now. This is the centurion's perspective in verses 6 through 8. And Jesus went with them. When it was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, do you see here how we have the heart of the centurion displayed for us. He's turned toward the Lord Jesus in the hearing of the gospel by the report of a third party. We know from what he says here, he has never actually met the Lord Jesus. He has not even heard him in any way because for a Gentile to come near was to make a Jew ritually unclean. He's only heard of Christ from the report of others. This is the future pattern, isn't it? Of all Gentiles, indeed, even of you and me, after Christ's resurrection and ascension, we have heard the report of the Lord Jesus. We have heard the account of his resurrection from the dead, the empty tomb. And the word has stirred our hearts, and we have believed on him. So the report from the Jewish leaders reaches the centurion. The Lord Jesus has begun to make his way to his home. And his humility at the news is apparent right away. So we learn of this second delegation. This time it's friends who come to meet Jesus on the way. Perhaps he also realized the cost of the Lord Jesus entering his home in ritual uncleanliness. He knows that were Jesus to enter it would make him unclean. So what does Luke underline here? He underlines for us what the two components of saving faith truly are. The first is know who you are truly before the Lord. We see it here in his message through his friends in verses 6 and 7. Lord, do not trouble yourself, 
for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. So how does this soldier see himself? He sees himself as a sinful man. He's conscious of his own sin. We understand this, don't we? Indeed, every Lord's Day, as we come together and we hear the exhortation and we make our confession, we ourselves say the same thing about our own hearts and minds. We, we come before the Lord after the busy week of six days to come here on the first day of the week and we announce to ourselves and to one another, I am not worthy. What is the great problem for the non-Christian? Indeed, even of many Christians at the present time. They are strangers to this truth. They are strangers indeed to themselves. They, at the errors of others, through a microscope, they look at their own secret faults and they turn the microscope upside down. They live with an unwholesome unconsciousness of their own sin. The fact is, no one is in a position to understand Christ and Christianity who is not equated with their own sinful nature. But we mustn't stop there, must we? Because a Christianity that stops at the confession sees very little but sin as a type of slavery, doesn't it? So what have we forgotten? We've forgotten what follows next. It's the declaration of God's forgiveness in Christ. We must always embrace the grace that God himself provides so that we may be saved and declared righteous in Christ. Therefore, what does the believer conclude when confronted by God's perfect holiness on the one side and his grace to him and his astonishing rescue through the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection on the other, the confession and declaration of forgiveness? It means that as we go on from that point, we must never, ever look at ourselves in a self-righteous way whether it is toward another believer or toward an unbeliever that we may meet. Because the believer understands his or her own humanity before God, his or her own heart, indeed our proneness to wander. But the author of our salvation has promised to complete our salvation. We know this because God has said, that he loves us while we were still sinners because Christ was sent to die for us. So if your heavenly father has expended such love to you by the death of the, his son, how much more then will they complete in you the eternal life that he has promised through the son by the power of the Holy Spirit? So the first reality we must know is the fact that we are sinful. We are not worthy, yet God by his grace has saved us. That is the first thing the centurion demonstrates for us. 
But the second is how the centurion's faith is grounded in his understanding of who the Lord Jesus truly is. And we see this in the title that he uses. Luke is deliberate here. He places what would be a more general title of respect to a rabbi, Lord, alongside what he has just concluded in the Sermon on the Plain the Lord Jesus has given, where we saw the doubling of this title, the heightening of this exclamation in Lord, Lord, which points to God himself. And we can see that the same type of heightening follows the title here. It's in how the centurion understands the nature of God's authority, the authority of the Son. He is indeed the last Adam. He has the authority to renew creation. He can heal this dear friend, this servant of the Roman soldier. The Son of God, by the power of his word, can restore this servant to health. He need not come, only say this word. And he knows from understanding the law of God that indeed the recreation of the world by the word of Christ is an echo of the creation of the world at the beginning in Genesis 1. We therefore see the soldier's awareness here And what we would call an example of his profession of faith in verse 7. Say the word, he says, and let my servant be healed. This is the dual confidence of faith that becomes so important in Hebrews chapter 11. Do you remember the verse? Verse 1, it's a confidence in the promise of the future completion. Now, faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, is the assurance of things hoped for. But it is not done in a vacuum, is it? It's a confidence of things heard, the testimony of what has been accomplished already. So it goes on to say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, grounded where? In the conviction of things not seen, the testimony of the Christ's own resurrection from the dead. This Roman soldier heard Christ's gospel. He understood his authority over creation. He has a confident trust in the testimony. He has a confidence assurance in the future completion. Say the word, my servant will be healed. And then the centurion saw Christ's power manifested when his servant got up from his sickbed, totally healed. This is the faith that pleases God. It is a faith that sees itself. It is a faith that sees God for who he truly is. Indeed, we know in another gospel that an inquiry is made when it was that the servant stood up out of his sick bed, and it was the very moment, the very hour that our Savior said, let him be healed. So let's turn now to our own Lord Jesus Christ. What is his perspective as this first encounter concludes? When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, 
Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now the centurion showed his faith through his words of confident trust. He understood who Jesus is. He understands why Jesus has come. But what is the Lord Jesus' perspective on this Gentile's message? He marvels. He marvels. This God-fearing Gentile, who has never been allowed to approach the great temple in Jerusalem, Zion itself, who has, in a way, stood at a distance from the synagogue worship, studied the law on his own, has such a trust, such a trust in the Lord Jesus, of whom he has heard a verbal report alone, that it causes our Savior to marvel. The power of the word of the gospel overcame this man's background, an uncircumcised Gentile outside of the covenant, not knowing the scriptures. The word of salvation overcame his occupation, where his threat of violence, the raw power of his position over the population, would have nursed his pride. He was a Roman, and they were conquerors. But instead, his heart is humbled, indeed conquered, by the sweet word of God. It overcame his wealth, his status, where riches may have kept him cornered in this world with no desire for the next, that glorious world to come. My dear friends, the word did it all. And so the Lord Jesus marvels. So let me ask you a little quiz now. When did the Lord Jesus last marvel? Well, the last time, as Mark's gospel tells us, was in his rejection by his hometown of Nazareth. There, Mark tells us, the Lord Jesus marvels at their unbelief. Consider the contrast. Could it not be more stark? Here in Nazareth were a people who had encountered the Lord Jesus for 30 years. And so they turned away from him again and again and again. Until that terrible day finally came and the Lord Jesus left Nazareth forever. And salvation indeed left that village forever, never to return. We know that in the Gospels, he never returns to Nazareth. The contrast cannot be starker, can it? It's in our Savior's wonder here. The word works to soften a heart to receive the Gospel, or it works in rejection after rejection to harden a heart against the Gospel. What do we learn here? There is no third perspective. There is no other perspective in how the Lord Jesus sees you. How does he marvel? 
When you fall in his sight, does he marvel at your faith for the testimony that you have heard that has convinced you that he is Savior and Lord? Or does he marvel in unbelief, in compromise, in sophistry to somehow focus on the externals of this life and so quietly pass him by? Until the day comes and he no longer looks to find you. Does he see you as deserving his grace like the Jewish elders saw the centurion? Does he see your heart inwardly think that because you are a lover of the church, that you are worthy of his care? Have you secretly internalized others' good opinions of yourself? So that despite the persistent teaching of God's word and conviction, you then somehow change it to be for someone else and not for yourself. Does the Lord Jesus marvel because you are one of the Christians who glibly talk about their salvation? But what of their walk? What of their life amongst others? We must face the truth, mustn't we? That apart from the grace of God in Christ, our hearts are desperately evil. With the self at the center of our universe, where darkness reigns instead. But what is our reality before the Lord? The reality is that you and I, my dear friends, like our centurion brother in Christ, we are not worthy No one is. All our acts of supposed righteousness will not cut it before a heavenly father. Our only hope, our only hope in this world and the next is the love and grace of Christ. So we must ask ourselves each and every day, do we see Christ clearly with the eyes of faith through the testimony of the word of God. Do we see Jesus for who he truly is? Do we see him as our savior? Do we see him as our hope? For in him, as Paul writes to the Colossians, says, Jesus, all the fullness of God, is pleased to dwell in him. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.